have entered the realm of critical analysis, critical strangeness, critical mass, and cretinous humor. Fasten your convictions. Stand for a bumpy ride. Welcome to the Polyschismatic Reprobate Hour. Here with a face for radio and a voice for silent film, I'm Dan the Demented. And joining me this season are the missing links, Danny Shade, Hera Flea, and a number of others. On this show, we advocate unspeakable obscenities, such as freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, open communication, and personal responsibility. If critical examination of the issues you hold dear offends you, don't firebomb the internet, don't send in Islamic extremists to assassinate us, and don't pray for us, just switch to another podcast it's been a long time but welcome to season three part two of the polyschismatic reprobates hour today i'm joined by danny shade as we interrogate richard carrier regarding the crimes of historians specifically how current trends in historical studies undercut what really happened in the ancient world with regards to science and technology. So without any further ado, I bring you part one of three of the Richard Carrier interview on ancient science. Okay, so we're here today with uh, Dr. Richard Carrier. He's now a doctor of philosophy and ancient science um, from Columbia University. Columbia University, New York. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. Just, you. Uh, you just finally got the dissertation defended and yep, ratified? Yeah, did the defense, and uh, I don't have the actual signatures yet, but mm-hmm. all the committee members have said they're going to sign, so it's excellent. It's a done deal. Richard is former editor-in-chief of the Secular Web at infidels.org and the author of Sense and Goodness Without God, a pocket worldview. Um, <laughs> Hardly pocket, but well, yes. <laughs> that's how you described it on the show yeah. last night, a pocket worldview. It's an introductory book to metaphysical naturalism with a Richard Carrier slant all the way through it. That's right. It's quite good and definitely well worth picking up on Amazon. We're also joined today by another reprobate, Danny Shade, who's my Apologia cohort and composes the music for Predestination and Other Games of Chance, the novel I'm currently podcasting from www.jdsawyer.net. And we're here to talk about the crimes of historians. (laughs) Or or persons passing as historians. (laughs) Persons passing as historians. There's a rising uh, cachet and respectability around the notion that we only have science because of Christianity. If we didn't have Christianity, there would be no science. And if this doesn't argue for the truth of Christianity, at least it argues for the usefulness of Christianity. And we should therefore not spend our time trying to attack it and debunk it as being anti-intellectual because it's not. Christianity is responsible for intellectualism. As Rodney Stark says in his book For the Glory of God, Greek learning was a barrier to the rise of science. It did not lead to science among the Greeks or the Romans, and it stifled the intellectual progress among is. Well, it says among Islam, but it's bad grammar. Oh, um, <laughs> that's corrected in, in victory. It's corrected in that what is in, in victory, victory of reason. It stifled intellectual progress in Islam. And uh, he further goes on to argue into the glory of God that scientific discovery and the improvement of knowledge went on through the collapse of the Roman Empire in the Dark Ages without abatement. And uh, Richard Carrier has been on his blog and in other popular venues online more or less uh, 
slagging Rodney Stark off for uh, for this and decrying the current state of popular history because this theory is becoming respectable enough that it's getting positive reviews among professional historians in venues like the New York Times and the New Yorker. Yeah, except among historians of science who know it's bollocks. So why is it bollocks? Because this is the view I actually grew up learning. Really? That, <clears throat> yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. The, I didn't know. Well, well, the, the, so did I. Yeah. Interesting. The, the, argument, and, the argument I grew up with is that Christianity, by desacralizing the natural world, made it possible to study the natural world without committing sacrilege. Right. Therefore, um, without Christianity, you could have no science. That's interesting. And you, you've been hearing this for how long now? Though? Oh, since I was born. Um, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I grew up. My father's a theologian. Yeah. You yeah. know. So. Well, I, I know this idea goes back uh, to the early 20th century, um, but I didn't know it was so widespread that even people I'd just meet at random would have well, heard of it. That that I, I mean, now it's getting much more pressed than it than it used I, to. I grew up in a Christian household, and that. Pretty much always made sense, and even when I deconverted, I still blah blah blah. It didn't doesn't necessarily make the religion right. It just it's just a fact. But right. it, I'm really interested to hear what you got to say about it, because yeah, just like Dan, I've I've always just believed it. Well, there are a lot of historians now. A D'Souza, if you can count him as a historian. D'Souza is a historian. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say yeah, if you can count him as a historian. Well, Rodney Stark's not a historian either. That I mean, it's important. He's to, not. No, no, oh, no. He's he, a sociologist, and in fact, his specialty is modern religion. Well, a real um, historian, please stand up. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't don't make him stand up. He'll knock the microphone yeah. over. <laughs> um, Rodney Stark, I must say, though, Rodney Stark is an excellent sociologist. In his field, he's brilliant, he knows his stuff, and he's worth reading on that subject. But when he tries okay. to do ancient medieval history, he's terrible. I mean, like, e even worse than your average layman. Several of his recent books are ancient and medieval oh, history, Oh, yeah, totally, too, totally, right? yeah. And he relies very much on secondary sources that I think he's sort of selecting the sources that say what he wants to hear, and he only quotes them. And he doesn't really do the research that you would do to say, well, what do other historians on the same subject say? You, know, you don't try to figure out what is mm -hmm. the dialogue in this field and then come up with a synthesis. He doesn't try to do that. He just says, well, Stanley Yaki says such and such, therefore I'm going right. to declare it as a fact in here as if it's the consensus. Which he does in For the Glory yeah, of God yeah. on page we'll get, we'll 158. Oh, yeah, yeah. and um, I should mention, now the Victory of Reason, is that's the more recent one, right? I think so. Yes. Copyright yeah, that's 2003. Um, yeah, For the Glory of God, it was 2003, and The Victory of Reason is yeah. 2005. Okay. Um, they overlap a lot, I mean, almost verbatim, and especially in this particular section, the two sections are almost verbatim, same length, same material, word for word in some cases. But in Victory of Reason, he adds a few more pages. I don't, I don't know if they're going to matter for what we talk about today. They might. But yeah, he's doing history from the perspective of a sociologist, and he started this with... Um, the Christian book, uh, The Origins of Christianity. The one called. where he argues that Christianity didn't borrow from any other religions, or am I confusing him No, with that's Nash? not him. That's Nash. That's yeah, Nash, right. Okay. That's, that's Nash, definitely. Um, someone, well, I won't take him on directly, but <laughs> that will be refuted by my next book. But, Excellent. Yes, The Rise of Christianity was his first foray into ancient history, applying sociological theory to ancient history. Okay. Um, and that book's not terrible. It makes some mistakes. Um historically. Mm -hmm. uh, but sociologically, it's interesting, and it's an interesting book if you understand how ancient historians disagree with him, uh, right. which is something that a lot of people don't know. Right. But if you understand that, then it can give you good insights into yeah, yeah. the I mean, social forces at work within the ancient Christian And what sorts movement. of arguments you could have in, in this subject. Whereas right. when we get to the victory of reason and for the glory of God, I mean, 
I can't vouch necessarily for the medieval or modern period arguments, although some of them look pretty fishy to me. For the ancient material, I can say bona fide that, that it's just terrible. I mean, it's just so terrible that I, I'm shocked at how terrible it is. Well, let's get down into specifics. What is wrong with this thesis? Well, this is uh, The Victory of Reason, the hardcover edition, page 20. This is, what he's, this is basically his thesis, and he defends this in a grand total of like three pages. Ultimately, Greek learning stagnated of its own inner logic. After Plato and Aristotle, very little happened beyond some extensions of geometry. <laughs> he, says that, he says that almost verbatim in The Glory of God oh, as well. Yeah, yeah, tr truly. Um, that sentence alone is so fantastically false, it's, it's shocking. I mean, literally, like, I read that, I'm like, I was like, you know, the, the look of reaction on my face was astonishing. Like, how could it, he possibly say Well, give that? us some specifics. What? It's, it's hard to know where to start, though, huh? Yeah, uh, well, I know. Well, he's he's basically, levels. I mean, he's literally erased the whole history of ancient science, because Aristotle actually began <laughs> the history of ancient science. Aristotle was the first real scientist, or and uh, people of his generation, he wasn't the only one. Right. But people of his generation were really the first ones to do science, and they just started. And then, you know, all the really good stuff comes after. Rodney Stark has right. no knowledge of it. Like, what but, are you not reading anything on this subject? But, but Richard, I, I've always heard about Aristotle that he used to say that uh, humans and animals have a certain number of teeth, but he never bothered to even look at someone's mouth to count how many teeth they have. <laughs> yeah. And he wasn't a good scientist for that. Uh, yeah. Well, is that true? Actually, you could find mistakes like that in all scientists, even in the modern times. But uh, that actually is based on a textual problem. I don't think Aristotle... It can't be known for certain that Aristotle actually wrote that. The section where that is mentioned, you can tell that the text has been garbled, like sentences are out of place. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's talking about pigs at one point and people in another, and in pigs, it's actually true. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not clear whether he was extending his findings in pigs to humans, which, he, which is an error he might have made, or if it's just a sense tr sentence transposition where he never actually wrote that. Right. Now, um, the, but it doesn't matter because after Aristotle, that, that wasn't believed anyway. Right. So. Uh, now, Stark's contention and the, um, the contention that I have heard over and over again in different science classes over the years is that the problem with Aristotle wasn't that he was anti-scientific, but it was that he was anti-empirical. Yeah. He he was um, which is like, astonishingly well, absurd. But anyway. The the argument is that he was like the medieval scholastics and that he believed that you could arrive at universal truth through the use of reason alone, right? Um, and you didn't need to fact check with the natural world. Yeah, that's ironically exactly the opposite of Aristotle. That's Plato, and okay. Aristotle argued against that view extensively. Um, Aristotle is the one who actually made the argument that your Scientific knowledge, what they called physics, which is what we call science, basically. It's mm -hmm. the whole st right. study of everything. It's not just physics, but biology, geology, everything. Right. All of Anything it physical, right. Yeah. Um, he argued that it had to be empirical, that you had to argue from the facts. And the facts come first, and the facts trump theory. If theory doesn't agree with the facts, so much the worse for the theory. And Aristotle does this extensively, and he did some of the most extensive uh, vivisections and dissections of animals to confirm certain hypotheses or refute others. And although he relied on that, he also relied on hearsay uh, from experts, like he would talk to a local butcher or something like that. Right. So not, and he was fully aware of the fact that all his information wasn't equally reliable and that you had to actually test it yourself. And this is part of his empirical method that he tried to argue for. Okay, so that argument is, 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 a, is a confusion of Platonism with it Aristotelianism. It really is. Uh, okay. and, but it is very much what the scholastics thought Aristotle said. And, and it's oh, important to know that... Okay. that the, the scholastics started with a small Aristotelian corpus. They didn't have it all. Right. Um, now, and, um, and of course, if, weren't really interested. If we can digress for a moment to catch yeah. the audience up, the scholastics were the medieval tradition of monk scholars who began with Aquinas. 
I don't I don't know or the history it? of when it began, but okay. but basically what they did was interpret Aristotle or try to expand on Aristotle. Okay. Uh, but only a small corpus of Aristotle's writings. They didn't have all of his writings. Uh, and were often interpreting it in strange ways because they didn't understand the actual context in which he was writing. Right. And they, they certainly they had actually assumed that, and as Rodney Stark assumes, which suggests to me that he's relying on medievalists rather than ancient historians, but uh, they assumed that Aristotle was the pinnacle of the achievement in the ancient world. They didn't even right. know about all this other science yeah, until, Stark, until Stark these says, manuscripts started leaking. Yeah, Stark west. says that in so many words in For yeah. the Glory of God. He says that Aristotle considered himself to be living in a golden age and golden age, <laughs> golden ages are the, by definition, the pinnacle of technological progress. So no one after, no one after him who followed him believed that anything more could be done. So they yeah. stagnated. Yeah, we'll get to that. But, okay. um, that's a whole different. That's of course technology. <laughs> technology and science do have two different histories, but I am a specialist in both, actually. So we can talk cool. about both of these subjects. But uh, to get back to that one statement, though, what, what is it? Uh, yeah, ultimately, Greek learning stagnated after Plato and Aristotle. Very little happened beyond some extensions of geometry. Um, it, it's it's, it's funny that, that he says some extensions of geometry, like what, like trigonometry, the, right? You know, the, the first thing that popped to mind when I read that is Aristarchus, the first man <laughs> to figure out that the Earth goes around the sun. Yeah, uh, you could probably dismiss that because his texts weren't preserved and his theory didn't win out. Although his theory was still debated for a long time, it wasn't a settled question. This right. is one thing that that's assumed that because the Christians preserved certain scientists, it was assumed that those scientists were the consensus. When in mm -hmm. reality, there were debates going on all and the time. And it just the Christians preserved um, the text that the people preserving the text well, yeah, uh, sided with. I mean, you could make the argument that Aristarchus, even in the Middle Ages, Aristarchus was associated with Strato and other Aristotelians who were considered atheistic. They were too mm. atheistic, too atomistic. To defend right. heliocentrism, Aristarchus and um, Seleucus, I think, Seleucus of Babylon, uh, he was also a, a heliocentrist. Uh, uh, they, they used arguments for heliocentrism that went against the grain of what was considered more comfortable cosmology and theology. Whereas if you gotcha. get Ptolemy, who's in the tradition, which we'll, we'll talk about Ptolemy in a bit, but when you get to Ptolemy, he's in the tradition of more Aristotelian thinking that's cosmology that Christians are more familiar with. And his work was so fantastically brilliant that mm -hmm. it just eclipsed everything else because they figured, well, this is the best book there is. We'll just copy this one and forget the rest. Gotcha. Um, but even that, it's like just barely, you know. But let's get to this. Okay, science ended with Aristotle and Plato. Yeah, okay. Here's just a short list, mind you. I'm just going to go – this is like a really brief canned history of ancient science, and I'm just going to pick the big guys. There, there are literally um, – I think in my forthcoming book, The Scientist and the Early Roman Empire, I have a, a longer brief history of science, and I, I come up with at least 100 scientists uh, that made significant contributions. Uh, but even right out of the gate, Theophrastus – I mean – this is something a medieval should know. Theophrastus extended Aristotle's anatomical work and physiological work on animals to plants. He wrote very extensive where he's dissecting plants to try and understand why plants grow and what the differences are between different kinds of plants and so on. So botany and botanical physiology. He also studied fire through empirical means and looking at different ways that fire is used in industries and so forth. So pyrology. He also studied mineralogy, fossils. He wrote a book on fossils that wasn't preserved. Uh, so wow. here's someone, clearly someone who's doing science. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, it, and he's the God successor to Aristotle. I mean, so right here, <laughs> immediately, we have mm -hmm. someone doing science uh, right after Aristotle. But besides Theophrastus, um, after him, he had Strato. Strato is actually 
considered the inventor of the experimental method, not because he's the first to have done experiments. Uh, Aristotle actually describes some. Theophrastus does as well. But uh, Strato actually was the most systematic in describing how you would go through the procedure of doing an experiment and try to rule out all possible explanations of the experiment. Oh, nice. So, so he, really, he developed the theory of experimentation. I would say. I mean, it, we don't have his work, so we don't know exactly how okay. much he worked it out. But we have quotations and references to him in later authors so that we can sort of reconstruct what sorts of things he was doing and arguing. Uh, and some of his stuff is pretty impressive. And it's, it's a shocking loss to ha not have Strato's work. And he's the third successor to the school of Aristotle. So here we have you know, scientists proceeding within the school of Aristotle itself. Uh, but even outside that, you have in Alexandria is a famous center of science right after yeah, Aristotle because yeah. uh, Aristotle was the tutor of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered the world while Aristotle was alive founded Alexandria, and then shortly after Aristotle died, Alexandria was being built up by one of the generals of uh, Alexander the Great who carved out an empire for himself in Egypt. And he built Alexandria up as a great center of learning in all fields of learning, philology, uh, poetry, uh, and all the different sciences, medical science and engineering science. Mm -hmm. And one of the leading scientists of Alexandria was Ctesibius, uh, <laughs> who actually was the first to uh, write about the science of pneumatics, which is the study of the movement of air and water. Right. He was also relying on some of the work of Strato, I think, or, or vice versa. They're near contemporaries, I think. But uh, they were studying things like the principle of the vacuum. Uh, and they were doing mm -hmm. experiments that were often thought only to have been done in the 17th century or the 16th century. Right. In fact, they invented um, – I don't know if it was him or if it was one of his successors – invented the pipe organ based on That's hydraulics. Tisibius, yeah. It was Tisibius, yeah, okay. yeah. It was It was developed more further on after them. But yeah, yeah, he developed principle. It's based on using water to push air to make sound. Mm-hmm. But here he's thinking of it in scientific principles, not just technologically describing the machines you can do, but also building a philosophy, a, a sort of physical explanation of why these machines work. Um, then you have Archimedes. I mean, how could you forget Archimedes? Oh, man. No you know, uh, Archimedes, of course, is the founder of hydrostatics and mechanics. The Probably the first, the first, certainly the first we have on record of proving empirically mathematical scientific laws. So uh, he had the principle of hydrostatics, which is where you can measure the densities of things by immersing them in water. Right. Um, but all, all the principles of that relate to buoyancy of ships and ship hull design, and he wrote treatises on all these mm -hmm. things. Like da Vinci, he was a brilliant um, military technological innovator. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, of course, there's debates actually among ancient historians as to okay. how much how innovative his technologies were, but uh, one thing he did do is he certainly gathered all the best technologies there were and organized them into a system of defense for Syracuse that gave the Romans a rare black eye. It was, I mean, it, he, he kicked the Romans' ass so badly that when the general finally did invade the city, finally did get in, he gave orders that Archimedes is the only one not to be killed. Uh, because <laughs> like, he wanted okay, to torture yeah. him himself. No, no, no. Oh, to the to... contrary. They want him working for them, uh, but, which in fact he used to be because Syracuse hmm. used to be a Roman ally, but, and then they turned. But, but, but then, but then but some, the, and he some, some soldier stumbled upon him and didn't know who he right. was. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, which may have been a sort of, uh, oh, yeah, I don't know who that is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he became a hero even in, in Roman legend for his great genius, despite the fact that, you know, it was sort of, covered up the fact they didn't cover it up but they just sort of ignored the fact that right. he was at the time of his great genius he was the enemy of rome and, and uh, but he but he also did mechanics he did the first laws of mechanics the law of the lever for mm -hmm. example um, right leverage the, yeah the principle uh which is a mathematical ratio law mm -hmm. uh principles of screws for example water screws mm -hmm. um 
and various no, there's, things. There's a controversy over whether he invented it or whether he simply explained it. Right, yeah, exactly. That, I, I've, there I've, is some I've debate heard, about that. I've heard parts of a debate about whether Sennacherib, the ancient uh, right, Sumerian yeah, king, yeah, okay. invented Not the Not a lot screw of people know about that. And used, right. it to, um, used it to water the gardens that later became falsely known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That's right, yeah. There, there's a description we have, I think, in an inscription yeah. um, where it's not clear what he's describing, but it sure sounds like a water screw. Um, and it looks like one, too. Oh, is, is there, there's, there's oh, a right, picture. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. But uh, even the picture, not entirely sure what it is that's right. being shown. Uh, Richard, so how does Rodney Stark respond to Archimedes and these other characters? I mean, does well, he even he mention them? Or no, he doesn't even know they exist. Yeah, they're never mentioned. You know, literally, his, <laughs> he, he quotes and discusses a lot of ancient philosophers, but no one after Aristotle. They're, they're all pre-Socratics or Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. He, he has so no it, knowledge of any other scientists. Or It, it seems then his arguments just sort of built on selective evidence. Well, yeah, he pick, it, right. He picks the guys that he doesn't like. Well, I don't, I don't think he's doing that. I think he's a bad historian in the sense that he didn't check. I think he's being hmm. fed this stuff by these Christian apologists like Stanley Yaki and, and Hukias and, and these other early 20th century, mid-20th century. I guess Yaki's still right. alive, but I guess you could call them historians. So you're saying his really sources are more apologetic but, than actually historical? Well, he, he's just not being judicious in selecting his sources. He's, he's believing what these people tell him without checking, essentially. Um, hmm. I mean, I, I think Stark is completely honest. It's just he's not. I mean, you, you would get an F grade if you did this in a paper in a college, <laughs> you know, term course. An honest uh, F, though. What's that? An honest an F. F. Yeah, yeah, right. Because um, he's not doing the most basic, fundamental things you should do. Is like check the references in the field for what was going on in ancient science, rather than just reading a few ideologues that are saying what you what you want to right. hear. But okay, no, let's see. We got to Archimedes, hydrostatics, mechanics. Uh, we're still only about a century or two after. Uh, Aristotle. We have Herophilus. Oh my God, how could you forget Herophilus? I've never heard about Herophilus. Okay, yeah, this is astonishing because Herophilus Herophilus was such uh, an accomplished physiologist and anatomist that we still use a lot of his terms that he named for for all the parts of the brain. A lot of the names of the pieces of the different sections of the brain are the cornea and the free, uh, sorry, the uh, cerebellum, for example. Those are all words that he coined because he was the first to thoroughly dissect the brain. Not only did he thoroughly dissect the brain, but he vivisected animals while still alive in order to determine which sections of the brain control which functions. So he knew where vision was, wow. he knew where, where audio was controlled, where the voice was controlled, where See, now, motor control was. I have was. always learned that the Romans and the Egyptians did brain surgery to evacuate uh, hematomas and that sort of thing. Right. That the understanding that the brain is the control center for the body didn't come around until the Enlightenment. No, absolutely not. In fact, it was so decisively that what the, the alternative view was at the heart. Uh, right, the center of reason, and I think that's still in Aristotle. I think Aristotle yes, still Aristotle still assumes this, but heart. Aristotle specifically says that it's very difficult to dissect human bodies because there's taboos against it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was dissecting animals, and he didn't get to this part of things. But Herophilus conclusively, and I mean conclusively, proved that the heart has no function in that respect. Uh, the heart only controls circulation. Right. Um, there were some philosophers that were conservatives and held out for the heart being the thing. But the, anyone who paid attention to science in the ancient world knew that the brain was the control center for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Galen later, as I'll talk about in a moment. Oh, Galen, even yes. more Invented um, medicine as we understand it today, right? No, yeah. actually, this was, I would say, scientific medicine begins with Hippocrates, who's a, oh, a, of course. a contemporary mm-hmm. of Aristotle. Right. Um, I mean, it's very primitive science. Right. Um, but... After Hippocrates, you have Diocles and these other medical scientists who are getting more and more sophisticated, and then you get to Herophilus, and there, there's a whole succession of these guys. Herophilus also worked at Alexandria, and he's probably the founder of 
what we would call scientific medicine. His what thing. year did this guy live? Herophilus would be third century BC. So that's so interesting. That that puts a whole new perspective that on me as to where we've been in terms of science and understanding. Yeah, because you really usually only think of anything, any knowledge that's pertinent to now has come way after Christ. Well, yes, this is what that's kind of what, what we assume. We, yeah, and you know, I, I'm I'm not even halfway down my list. So <laughs> please <laughs> so, continue. Yeah. So Herophilus, um, he also distinguished different motor nerves and sensory nerves. He told he really? could tell the difference between those and mapped them out throughout the body. Holy uh, shit! He, veins and arteries, he mapped those out and, and knew the difference between them and how they were wired up. Then um, he was the first medical scientist who actually got a hold of human cadavers and dissected them extensively. Uh, and he, he got this because he was working for the king who wanted the glory of it. So the king actually made the bodies of convicts available, uh, you know, executed cool. convicts for dissection, which is ironically exactly how bodies were acquired yep. in, in the Renaissance period. And it's how, again, it was it, it's a lot. It, it's how they're acquired now for the bodies exhibitions that are touring now. That oh, was it ex- executed yeah, criminals? Um, or? Yeah, tra- yeah, Chinese. The Chinese government's been making a pretty penny. So oh, yeah. right. Yeah, I've heard about that. That's a little creepy. It's a little um, creepy, but the but the exhibition is incredible i have heard that yeah it's worth going to yeah i think oh, they sure. still i think it's still down in vegas it's just a it's yeah, it moves around that's right it, yeah. it moves uh, around but i think it's there's still one in vegas and uh, there's one in miami right now too if you get a chance to go down they've got ways to to isolate certain kinds mm. of tissue so it's not just that you're getting the plasticized layers of muscles. There's there's a room devoted to the circulatory system yes, where I they've dissolved everything except the circulatory system. That's right. And they've got yeah. it suspended in glycerin. The, the coolest thing I saw there, it, it was all the blood vessels from a hand completely taken out, and it was just the blood capsules, and they were floating. Yeah. And, and kept in and shape. They, right, right. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, so it had the shape of it, and then they they filled it with some sort of uh, neon fluid, so they had a light on it, and it was lighting up, and it was incredible. Black light, and yeah, I've I've seen pictures of these things. Yeah, they they sound really cool. Definitely worth going to. But anyway, so Herophilus, clearly a scientist. This is clearly Mm -hmm. scientific progress. This is you know this is advanced scientific stuff going on after Aristotle. Um, He had uh, a pupil, uh, Erasistratus, who furthered this stuff even and did other things. And Erasistratus was an atomist. He wasn't necessarily Mm -hmm. an Epicurean or an atheist, but he was – he tried to explain the function of the human body in terms of mechanical principles like pumps, right, now, pump technology. Now, Democritus was, Democritus was the first was, atomist, right? Uh, Democritus – he's the first to systematize this idea. Of course, okay. we have nothing from him except quotations. Okay. We don't have his actual books. But yeah, there, there were scientists thinking in atomistic terms that weren't necessarily following in the tradition of Democritus or Epicurus. Epicurus. This is one thing to understand that scientists were very eclectic. They borrowed from different philosophies. Mm-hmm. So you could have an Aristotelian like Strato, who was very atomistic but also very Aristotelian, and he sort of combined the two worldviews into an, right. his own synthesis. Um, this is one thing that's often denied or not understood. Right. Well, and Epicurus, who founded a whole school of philosophy himself, yeah. took from everybody. He took from the mysteries. He took from Plato. He took from yeah, Aristotle. That, that's true, although he went more hardline atomist right. uh, than some of the others. Uh, okay, so Herophilus. All right, so that's medicine. Eratosthenes. How could you forget Eratosthenes? Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. Sure. Hooray. Improvements in in geometry. Here, there's, there's probably one of his what would he refer to some advances in geometry. <laughs> Eratosthenes yeah, like, invented uh, invented trigonometry, right? Um, Proto trigonometry. Proto trigonometry. Really, the okay. full on what we would call trigonometry. Of course, it's a different system he, he, than we. He use developed now, things. Now, Eratosthenes was was the one who developed triangulation yeah. as a way to measure distances. Oh yeah, yeah. and more than that. Uh, first of all, he he yeah well using. 
a similar technology, a similar concept. He measured the diameter of the Earth. The diameter of the Earth, uh, of course, from the, uh, to, the shadow. Yeah, to remarkable region. accuracy. Right. Um, I mean, remarkable for the time. I mean, he was off by, you know, maybe like... A I, thousand I miles or something. Five percent or something. Yeah. It's ten percent or five percent. It's not a lot. It was in, historically speaking, there was an article where some guy was talking about how the Greeks just did things because they were interested in it. They didn't have any practical uses for them. And like Eratosthenes, Bullshit. who measured the, <laughs> measured the Earth for no reason, just out of pure curiosity, I'm like... Wait a minute. <laughs> Myth making is alive and well in the scientific no, disciplines, no, uh, too. It's absolutely not correct because he was a cartographer. He right. wanted to uh, map the world, but the world is curved. And he knew this. He knew the Earth was round, which creates a problem for measuring distances and mapping things and, right. and so forth. So he says, okay, in order to get an accurate map, I need to know the diameter of the Earth so I know what the curvature of the Earth is, and from that I can work things out. And so that's why he did it. It was a mm-hmm. practical application to cartography, yeah. which is something I'm sure was of great use right. to Now, where do the, the Greeks get – because the, um, the, standard, the standard school, you know, high school history of science has the Greeks being interested in knowledge just because knowledge is beautiful. Right. And the Romans <laughs> being completely uninterested in anything that doesn't yeah. pay off in military strength or money right, right. away. Yeah. That, that's a myth – on both ends of the scale. The, the Greeks were primarily interested in utility, and utility is what drove most of the science of the period. There was curiosity, and curiosity was valued. So there was the study of things just for knowledge for its own sake. But even that had some sort of benefit, like it brought pleasure, like you said, or mm-hmm. it was still there was still a utility function involved. Epicurus was, was a utilitarian hedonist. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Uh, um, so he's thinking, hey, we've got to make a philosophy that's going to work for us that will be useful. Like explanations, physical explanations of things were useful to the individual to ward off fear and, and other things like that. But, uh, but yeah, so the Greeks were also interested in utility, and the Romans were not disinterested in theory. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of the most impressive theoretical work comes from the Romans. I'll get to that. An, I'm still not even in the Roman period yet. Okay. Uh, so we have yeah, Eratosthenes measured the Earth uh, using a, astronomy to you know, measure the curvature of the Earth and so on. Obviously, this is science after Aristotle. You know, Aristotle would be very impressed with these things that are going on after him. Um, <laughs> Seleucus. Seleucus was a successor to Aristarchus. Um, Aristarchus, as you mentioned before, is the first guy to posit that maybe if, if we suppose that the sun is the center of the solar system, we can explain the, mo- the weird motions of the planets as well as, in fact, better than what was going at the time is right. the best theory. Because Ptolemy hadn't come around right. yet, so um, they didn't have the, the fine calculations for the epicycles. Right, yeah. Well, actually, that's going to come sooner than Ptolemy. I'm getting to that okay. next guy. But, but Seleucus succeeded Ar- Aristarchus, um, and interestingly, we don't have uh, any of the relevant writings of Aristarchus and none from Seleucus, but Seleucus is the first to fully work out lunar-solar tide theory. Uh, he actually really? proved that the position of the sun is directly correlated with the tides as well as the moon. So they, they had figured out earlier than that that the moon affects the tides, but to add into that that the, that the sun also affects the tides, that's a huge advance. That's, that's – t- I'm impressed. Uh, we have this tantalizing comment from a Roman uh, author, Plutarch, who, who clearly was familiar with the works of Seleucus and Aristarchus and says – in this throwaway statement as he's just going on talking about something else, he throw, Aristarchus hypothesized the heliocentric theory and Seleucus proved it. And he goes on wow. and just like he goes on and, and, and the interesting thing wow. is one of the central arguments that Galileo tried the hardest to use to prove heliocentrism was lunar solar tide theory, and he couldn't make it work. He, his his explanation didn't actually mm-hmm. succeed the way he wanted it to. But it's interesting that he thought that was the way to do it, and it's very tantalizing because Seleucus is famous for having discovered lunar solar tide theory so, and for having proved heliocentric theory. So so it's interesting. Did, and we did know he that use we know it? Galileo had access to manuscripts, ancient works that are not. 
survive that didn't survive to today. Oh. So it, those it's are, curious. Those are, those are the ones that kill me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the ones they didn't get burned in the in the great purges of the library. Well, they weren't. Yeah, and they weren't and necessarily they burned. Get, they just weren't didn't copied. Get, and they didn't get abandoned. In the in the oh, early right. part, yeah, yeah, and they made it they, as far as they Galileo. Made it as far as Galileo, and <laughs> it's like there's another one of one of one of my other favorite um, tr- favorite tragedies mm. like that is Martin Luther claimed to have a copy of Josephus that didn't have any reference to Jesus. Ah, right, hmm. and that doesn't survive to today either. Yeah, that's interesting. That's especially interesting. I hadn't heard of that. That's that is notable. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so Lucas, anyway, so lunar solar tide theory, important thing. And it's interesting that he probably did the same thing. He tried to prove, um, oh, and also in this Plutarch work where he mentions this, he also talks about the first time that we hear it in extant literature, uh, uni- a theory of universal gravitation is discussed. Um, really? Not, not as proven, but as a theory to explain, wow. uh, to explain how the moon and the sun affects the tides, right. that they're pulling on them with a gravitational mm-hmm. force, and that the moon stays in orbit because of centripetal force that keeps it from falling. Which is wow. actually correct, you know. It's fundamentally correct. So, so there, there's these words. <laughs> I mean, I love ancient science, and I'm sitting here going, "Dude, yeah, yeah, exactly." Um, now these things are still being debated, but clearly there were works talking about these things that we don't have. Uh, but anyway, so Lucas is clearly an important scientist who made a significant advance. Then we get to Hipparchus. Okay, now Hipparchus, we're talking second century BC. So we've gotten that's we've hardly mm-hmm. moved at all in time. Uh, we're at second century BC. Aristotle, by the way, is 4th century BC. Right. Um, so Hipparchus. Hipparchus is the great, the first great astronomer. Uh, there were astronomers before him, and the attempts were being made to explain the motion of the planets because the planets don't make sense. They, they behave weirdly. They go backwards and do loop-de-loops. And right. They didn't understand why yeah, they weren't you can, all uh, orderly and neat like the stars were. Right. Now, uh, anyone who's listening who grew up in a city, you won't have seen this because a, right. lot of them, <laughs> a lot of them get stifled by light pollution. But if you go on to NASA's astronomy picture of the day and thumb through the archives, you can see some beautiful time-lapse photos of Mars and Jupiter going yeah, retrograde absolutely. and looping across the sky. And it's just stunning. Yeah, and interesting, it's worth looking at those because when you see the time-lapse photography, epicyclic theory makes a hell of a lot more oh, sense, yeah. uh, which I'm going to get to. Cause, so Hipparchus is the first uh, to actually do this, but there were other astronomers who realized that there were these weird things going on. Aristotle and other astronomers of his time tried to explain it with the, a huge number of interlocking spheres that, were, that their whole interlocking right. pattern was supposed to explain the motion of the planets, but that didn't work either. And one of their basic tenets was that uh, they had to be exact circular orbits equidistant from the Earth. So the Earth is in right. the exact center. But already in between Aristotle and Hipparchus, astronomers were noticing that the moon changes distance from the Earth because they were – you can have full eclipses of the sun and annular eclipses of the sun. In an annular eclipse, the moon is smaller than the sun and the sun peaks around the edges of it. And in a full eclipse, the moon completely covers the sun, mm. which proves that the moon is changing its distance. Right. So clearly it's not – in a circular orbit around the Earth. Uh, and there were other proofs as well that were, that were arguing that clearly the orbits are not circular and right. we're not in the middle of, the, or at least we're not in the middle of the circles. Uh, and so this, and then more data was gathered and so forth. And Hipparchus is the first to try and create an effective predictive theory. And he was probably the first to succeed in developing a theory that could actually predict the motions of the planets decades in advance, probably. Wow. Um, I had no idea Hipparchus did that. Well, certainly, uh, certainly it, had been done by the following century, for a reason I'll explain in a moment. Okay. Uh, but we know he was the guy figuring this out, and he's the one who came up with epicyclic theory. Epicyclic theory is the Earth is not in the center of the orbits of the planets. It's off-center. Um, and the planets that go around this orbit 
also go on little tiny circles as they go around the orbit in a kind of slow motion way. Right. And if you combine the two motions, it explains why the planets slow down, go in reverse course, and then speed back up and return to their regular course again. It makes a lot of sense. And if you've seen like those time-lapse photography, right. you can see, oh, that looks exactly like an epicycle. It makes complete mm-hmm. sense. Uh, so he's the first to have come up with this idea and, and started working it out. Uh, so he's the first to detect a supernova, that there are new stars in the heavens, uh, which refuted Aristotle's theory that, that nothing ever changes in the sky. Right. Uh, and he started and he started doing star maps for this very reason because oh we better start mapping these stars so we know where when they disappear and when new ones are showing up. Uh, and he's the first to discover precession. I don't know if you knew about precession. As yeah, well. I didn't know he it was discovered that. Well, yeah. no, it had to have been because there were um, there were it was it was uh, accounted for in Roman astrology, so it had to have been discovered earlier than right. That. Yeah. Well, Hipparchus. Yeah, he discovered precession. What what is precession? Yeah, I was just going to explain. Um, the, when the Earth spins like a top, it actually has a slight wobble. It actually the, the pole doesn't point in the same direction. It's slight, it has its own little sort of circular motion, such that uh, when the constellations rise in the sky, shifts by one whole constellation every two thousand some years. So there's a complete the wobble completes its course about every twenty five thousand years. So basically, from his point of view, this was the whole cosmos wobbling. It wasn't the Earth wobbling. Right. Uh, but still, the, the idea that you could detect a wobble that takes 25,000 years to complete its course, that's a fantastic scientific discovery. I mean, clearly the, mm-hmm. these guys had very precise measurements, long terms of records that were looking at them very carefully to notice that, oh, the sky is shifting. It's yep. shifting in this 25,000-year period. Yeah, the change of the constellation in the sky, if anyone is familiar with um, astrology from being subject to too many tabloids as a child, the um, <laughs> that that's the reason that the sun signs are a full sign out of sync now because right. the last time the astrological system was updated was during the Roman era. That's right. At the transition from the age of Taurus to the age of Pisces, and now we're in the age, just beginning the age of Aquarius, which is what the song is that's about. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they're all out of they're all out of sync, and that's precession that causes that. So here, like, and, okay, I've just gone through a brief survey of just Hellenistic. We're we're only about the 100 BC now. <laughs> Hello, this is Hera Flea, daughter of Heretic, back from hiatus. It turns out that a hitherto unknown civilization of intelligent dust mites has been discovered beneath the recording studio here, and archaeologists have been hard at work dissecting these precursors to the ancient Egyptians. I finally returned from hunting through the ruins of this ancient civilization to bring you this week's archaic edition of the Reprobates News. Archaeologists in Athens discovered a complete steam engine attached to a disused go-kart axle last week dated to the lifetime of Hero of Alexandria. Evidently, the inventor after whom so many great men have been called earned his reputation in the Hippodrome. A representative of the dig said that the graffiti uncovered near the go-kart translates to Hero kicks horse ass at the Constantinople 500. Meanwhile, other items found deeper at the site, including a 3,000-year-old jiffy loop, have led to a radical reassessment of how the country came to be called Greece. The Christian Transhumanist Association has attempted to claim the invention is an indication that Christianity had spread as far as Athens as early as 32 CE. When confronted with the unfortunate chronology of this claim, a representative pointed out, Shit, man, Jesus figured out how to upload 2,000 years ago. Dude could have had a time machine, too. Besides, this could just be something the steampunks planted here to make the Greeks look good. When this reporter pointed out the evidence from radiocarbon dating, he scoffed, saying, 
Look, man, you can't date carbon, okay? It's a mineral. There is no chance of a meaningful relationship. That's it for the Reprobates News. I'm Hera Flea, returning you to something slightly more sensible and maybe a little bit more modern. So, and yeah, when someone says that Christianity is responsible for the rise of science, it, it always <laughs> sort of begs the question, well, hasn't Christianity really hindered science a lot? I mean, even today, the creationism stuff and things like that, it seems like Christianity also fucked science a lot in, 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 in its supposed way of helping us. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, it's not, of course, it's nothing's black and white. It's not quite that simple. Right. Um, Christianity as it was of, let's say, the 4th century A.D., was definitely a hindrance to science and, in fact, pretty much killed scientific progress for about a thousand years, in my opinion. Um, there's still scholars who will debate that with me, but in reality, there's hardly anything significant done from about uh, 300 A.D. to about 1300 A.D., maybe so, about 1200 A.D. But, but 300 A.D. Down. was a full century before Christianity um, finished its ascendance to being the official Correct, correct, and that's an important point. Is it's also not, it's not just Christianity. This whole turn towards anti-scientific mysticism was pervasive. It was the, the pagans were doing it as well as the Christians. And in that respect, Christianity okay. was a symptom of the decline of the times oh. rather than really the cause of all of this. But it did stand in the way, and it was only when Christianity started absorbing the earlier pagan values, the, the, the high Roman Empire pagan values, only when Christianity started reabsorbing those values did it reorient itself in a way that would be supportive of science. So really it had to become pa more pagan to be more scientific. Mm. Uh, and, so and Christianity is, didn't just come riding in on its horse with all the answers Well, from yeah, the Bible. obviously not. I mean, it's the thing is like, <laughs> why, that's the first thing that you have to ask Rodney Stark is, well, then why wasn't the scientific, why did the scientific revolution happen in the 17th century? Why didn't it happen in the 5th? Right, the when, when Christianity you know, was named the official religion right, of the empire. Or, or the 6th or the 7th. Or the, you, know, the, right. you, you go century after century after century, we're waiting for this revolution. Where, where is this or, or revolution? Or after the fall of the empire, if you want to say the Romans were hindering it, which he does, yes. Um, then after the fall of the empire, there should have been a flowering. That's right. But yeah. instead, the best that anyone can do is Thomas Cahill's the, "How the Irish Saved Civilization," right? Which is pretty weak. Yeah. yeah. Two monasteries in Ireland copying texts that no one else wanted. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that's not exactly progress. But no. you guys want some manuscripts? Got some? Got a bunch. <laughs> You've been working really hard on them. You should check it out if you want. Um, okay, before I get to the Romans, there's one stop in the middle, this middle guy, Posidonius. Posidonius was a Greek. He was from Rhodes and, and various other places, but he was an ambassador to Rome. He interacted with the Romans a lot. This is in the, the dawn of where the, the, the baton is being handed, the torch is being handed from the Greeks to the Romans, really, intellectually. Uh, and in his period, we know he had built an astronomical computer. We have it described. And we've, we've got, actually we've got recovered pieces of it. We've from actually an undersea recovered. Wreck. That's right. We've we've recovered from a wreck this the pieces of this computer from right around the time and place where he lived. Uh, so it looks very much like, if not one of his computers, it's definitely what he was building, the kind of right. thing he was building. It's called the Antikythera computer. Now, how is it supposed to work? Is it like the astrolabe, or is it no, no, more no? This isn't. This is a bona fide computer. It actually it predicts the position of stellar bodies. What is it? Up to about 250 years in advance. So it's like a, a, a pocket planetarium. Yeah, it's it runs by gears. So it's obviously okay. it's not microcircuits, but right. it, it's a gear run computer. In that respect, it's much more like the targeting computers on battleships of World War One. Right, or uh, like the difference engine which uh, Babbage invented. Right, exactly. Where you do, you, it's a system of gears. You turn a crank, you set the dials a certain way, and you get a certain output. Right, because it's all um, ratios of, that's of right, gears yeah. working. Oh, that's how this other. worked. Is you could turn a dial that would 
represent the motions of the years, and then all of the things would move on the indicators, and it would tell you where something would be, and mm -hmm. it would tell you where ideal eclipse opportunities would be. So it could predict. Nice. It could so predict it wasn't lunar just where, where planets right. would be in the sky. It was where you would yeah, yeah. stand on the Earth to be. Well, uh, that's the thing is it was probably built for roads. Uh, okay, so tell you so, when an eclipse right. would come over roads. That's right. Yeah. Gotcha. So, solar eclipses. That's 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 the whole problem. Is at that time they couldn't. They couldn't draw eclipse tracks, so mm. they could tell you when the moon would be in position to eclipse the sun, but they couldn't tell you where on Earth that would be visible. Gotcha. At this point, at this point, mind you. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, tantalizing, <laughs> yes, tantalizing. Yes. So the computer could tell you when an eclipse, when a solar eclipse was possible, but it wouldn't guarantee a visible. But it would also tell you right. when lunar eclipses would be observed, and those are observed at the same time. Or they're observed across the Earth, not at the same time, right. obviously, because time zones. But, but they're also, they're, they also have a much wider eclipse track. That's right, yeah. I mean, if the, the shadow is on the moon, everybody, anybody can see the moon can Who's see Who's on it. the dark side yeah. of the Earth. Where, yeah. Whereas the moon, when it eclipses the sun, the shadow only covers a tiny part of the Earth. So right. if you're outside that shadow area, you don't see it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, it could calculate the eclipse times. And the, unfortunately, the section that we know track to the planets. It could tell you what zodiac sign a planet would, given planet would be in, which mm -hmm. is impressive because it requires epicyclic theory to have been represented in a computer gear form. Uh, that part That's is, is nice. largely missing. We have pe enough pieces of it to guess what was there, but we don't have the whole right. function of it. But it's been reconstructed, and we, know, we now know that it's probably based on Hipparchan theory mm -hmm. of epicyclic theory for doing all of these yeah. things. So it could tell the position um, of the sun, it could tell you when equinoxes, solstices, yeah. and, and it was a full astronomical computer, yeah. so you could and for, crank it up. For the listeners, there is a reconstruction of this computer demonstrated in the BBC series What the Ancients Did for Us, which yeah. is uh, available through the Discovery Channel. And that's all we have time for this week. Join us next week for the next part of the interview when we get into the Roman period and the impressive things that happened there that you probably have never heard about. Remember to send questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats to the blog at www.reprobateshour.com. See you then. Polly's Cosmetic Reprobate Tower is produced at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California, and is mixed by Kitty Nakian. This program and its contents are copyright 2009 Artistic Whispers Productions and are distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license.